0: This morning, our preacher uh, is my friend, and he's my brother. Uh, he gets to tell me what to do, and so this morning, I get to tell him what to do. David, get up here. Uh, he's going to come and preach. Uh, pastor David, I call him a lot of things, uh, but Pastor David is the pastor of New Community in Bronzeville. He doesn't need an introduction, uh, but he gets one. Uh, he's going to preach. I don't know what he's going to say. We're going to hear God's word from him um, uh, this man is a gem of a friend and preacher, uh, and he spends his time with the church uh, in Kenwood and Bronzeville leading there, but he, he has given us this morning uh, to proclaim uh, the good news to us. And so I'm going to uh, pray for him, and after we pray, uh, welcome him uh, by clapping for him. Uh, at his church, they didn't clap for me, but we'll clap for you this morning, okay? Uh, let's pray thank you Lord so much for David thank you for um, the ways that you use him the ways that he leads the ways that he serves thank you for the ways that he lives into the gospel of Jesus Christ by proclamation by ethic and example and lifestyle would you bless him today as he says what you've placed on his heart to say Give him grace. Give him the pace that comes from you, Holy Spirit. Make him sensitive to you in this preaching moment and make us as listeners open to hear from you, able to commune with you in this sermon time. Speak to him, speak to us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, welcome, David. Applaud for him, please.
1: Thank you. It is really good to be here this morning. Uh, Those of you who know her, uh, Pastor Michelle Dodson is preaching at our church down in uh, the Bronzeville community, so it's in one way, very easy for me to be here with you today, because I know things are going well there. Uh, in another way, it's, uh, it's hard to be away from uh, my own church family today. But because it's with you, I know I'm still with family. Amen? Um, before we read our passage this morning, uh, I actually want to lead us just uh, in a few moments of, of prayer. Uh, on Monday, and I, and I hope that most of us know this, on Monday, a nine-year-old, by the name of Taishaan Lee, was uh, murdered uh, near his home on the way home from school uh, to his home in what uh, authorities are now uh, labeling an, an execution-style uh, murder. Um, and so I, I want to pray with you for a few minutes this morning. And I want to call out two particular uh, ways of praying. The first is a prayer of lament. I'm not going to ask us to admit this morning, but my assumption would be that in this room, there are those of us who either didn't know about this event uh, or heard about it and very quickly moved on uh, with the regular, normal, so-called important stuff in our lives. Uh, And as Christians, that's simply not okay. Uh, And then there are others of us this morning uh, who when we see uh, Tyshon's face on the television, we see our son uh, or our brother uh, or our nephew. And so some of us this morning have been in a place of profound uh, grief uh, over the past few days. And it's possible and likely that some of you in that place have had to move throughout spaces this week where your grief and your pain and your anger was not seen and was not acknowledged. And you had to carry yourself in a way um, that was untrue, uh, both to this young man's death and to your own experience of it. And as Christians this morning, we want to say, that is not okay either. And so I'm going to give us a few moments of silent prayer, and I'm going to ask some of you to repent, to tell God that you are sorry that this young man's life didn't mean enough to us as a people and as a city that we wouldn't collectively be grieving. And I ask that you lament over the stuff in your own life that would somehow make his life less important than it is in the eyes of his creator God. And I ask you to repent this morning. I'm going to ask others of you this morning in this time of silence to come to your Savior and to know that he sees you. And to know that he grieves with you. And to know that He's angry with you. To know that He walks with you. To know that there is not a God-abandoned place in our city. I want you to, as best you can, be comforted in your anger, in your tiredness, in your grief, by the presence of your Savior this morning. So can we do that, church? Just pray quietly for the next couple of minutes. And then I'll close us. So our Father God, we, some of us this morning, come uh, needing to repent. We need to, with um, no excuses, no rationalization we need to this morning simply say to you that we are sorry. Some of us uh, spent more time this week thinking what we were thinking about, what we were going to order off a particular menu than we did grieving this young man 's life. We spent more time thinking about how we would entertain ourselves this weekend than we did feeling anger and shame over this young man's death. And we are sorry. God, we are sorry for our uh, misplaced priorities. We are sorry for living uh, disordered lives where things that somehow don't matter in the long run take up all the, the space in our emotions and in our minds and things of eternal value and individuals of eternal value like uh, Tyshawn and others somehow don't register for us. God, we are sorry. We are sorry for not thinking the best of our neighbors. We are sorry for passively, uh, some of us passively accepting the way things are passively receiving uh, benefits and privileges that are not earned, are not worthy, that are placed on the backs of others. We are sorry this morning, God. We ask for your forgiveness, but God, I also ask that you would humble us, that you would level us, that you would bring us low. That we would replace our distracted uh, entertainment and temporary uh, laughter with the grief and the mourning that is appropriate in this moment. Pray that you would teach us a spirit and a posture of lament in our city. God, bring us low today. Lord, we pray for others in our midst today who, who need to know that you are near, who need to know that you see them, that you know them, that their pain is valid, that what they are experiencing matters in profound ways to you. God, we pray for our sisters and our, and our brothers who have been, 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 been leveled by Not just this young man's death, but so many others. Please speak your truth to them today. Please tell them about your closeness. Please tell them about your presence. Please tell them about your cross. Please remind them of the saints Generation after generation after generation who have tasted and seen of the goodness and the provision of God in the hardest circumstances. Remind them that the way things are are not how they should be and are not how they one day will be. So we offer this lament to you today. We pray for Tyshawn's family, We pray for your justice in this situation, but even more, we pray for your justice in our city. A justice that leaves none of us unimplicated today. We throw ourselves on your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning we'll be in the New Testament, a book of Romans. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there now, please. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 17. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you have one, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament is towards the end and Romans is about halfway uh, through the New Testament. I thank you for giving us space this morning to lament and to pray, and ask that you would continue to lean in that direction this week. Uh, in our church, we stand for the reading of God's Word. Could I ask you to do the same this morning, please? Romans 12, verses 9 through 17. This is the Apostle Paul This is the word of the Lord, and you can be seated. I understand from your pastor, Pastor Peter, that you've been in a sermon series on uh, community. Is that correct? Okay. Not that I don't trust him. I trust him when he told me that, but just want to... You know, Sometimes we pastors think that one thing is happening and the church is like, really? That's what we're doing? Oh, okay. So I just want to double check. So we're looking at, uh, you've been looking at community and I want to sort of swim within that stream uh, today as best I can. Uh, and from this, this passage that we just read, I want to preach from the title, Jesus Loves Strangers and So Do We. Jesus loves strangers and so do we. I think it's probably appropriate that you've been looking at community as you prepare to enter uh, your new facility. Uh, You saw it on the screen a minute ago on your website as it talks about the, the new facility. It says in four weeks we're moving into our new... Remember what it said? Home. We're moving into our new home. And so today as you're preparing to enter your new home... I want to talk about one of the biblical expectations of community that I think is related to home, and that is showing hospitality. Now, a typical definition of hospitality goes something like this. Hospitality is the generous and friendly treatment of visitors and guests. Hospitality is the generous and friendly treatment of visitors and guests. And yes, I'm confident that when you move to your new facility a block and a half away, you will continue to show this kind of hospitality. You will continue to to show a generous and friendly treatment to every visitor and every guest who comes through your doors. I can actually remember the first time my wife and I worshipped in this facility. It was back in 2008. It was our first time here um, after we had moved to join the church staff. And, uh, and we were a little nervous. Uh, being in a, in a new church for the first Sunday, it's just, you didn't th- I don't know what to expect. I didn't know if anybody was going to greet us or talk to us. And so my wife and I, that morning, we were kind of like, what's going to happen? You know, who's going to be? And we know the Washingtons, so they'll be nice to us. Michael, most of the time, will be nice to me. I didn't know about the rest of you all. I hadn't met you yet. And so after the service, I, I, I found Maggie, and, and she said, we need to decide where to go to lunch and I said, well, we, you know, we can just go home. She said, no, no, multiple people have invited us to go out to lunch today, and, and we have to decide which group to go with. That was incredible. I mean, maybe to you that seems like a small thing, but when you don't know anybody, when it's your, your first time somewhere, to be invited out like that, to be seen and welcomed was a, big, was a big deal. I think we went with you, Gerald. I think you took us to like a pancake house or something like that. And It was great. And from then on out, we knew, like, oh, this will be good here. We were welcomed, that generous and friendly welcome. I'm confident that wherever this church ends up and in your new facility, that kind of hospitality will continue to be a priority. But this morning, we need to talk about a different kind of hospitality. Because it's one thing to be generous and friendly to those who you love, it's one thing to be generous and friendly to those you're similar with. It's, it's one thing to be generous and friendly to those who appreciate your hospitality, who send you a nice thank you card afterward. This kind of hospitality is not hard, especially if the, uh, the circumstances are, are ideal. But our passage, and Paul reminds us that our circumstances are far from Ideal. Some of the language he uses here to describe the circumstances of this early church are are these. He says, evil, affliction, there is need, there's persecution, there's reason for mourning, there's prejudice, there's the tendency toward revenge. These are not ideal circumstances. And it's in these circumstances that Paul tells the early church, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. We need to talk about a different kind of hospitality this morning. In verse 13, Paul uses language about practicing hospitality that could be translated maybe for our good this morning as love of strangers. Practice the love of strangers. This this language is only found in in one other place in the New Testament. The author of of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13 and 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality is definitely about caring for your friends, but, but not in this passage. Hospitality is about long meals and good conversations with family, but but not in this passage. Hospitality has to do with the ways that we treat each other within the church, but not in this passage. The hospitality that we find here is different. I would say it's harder and it is riskier. And to see why, let's Let's just look at this one word for a moment, the word stranger. Hospitality as the practice of the love of strangers. Who are the strangers in your life? It's kind of tricky for me to, to answer that because most of the time I'm not thinking about who the strangers are in my life. By definition, strangers are people who are kind of estranged from me. I'm not paying attention to them. I'm not noticing them. Who are the strangers in your life? We're really only forced to think about strangers when we're not surrounded by our friends or our acquaintances. When I'm uh, in an airport by myself and kind of have a layover, I people watch, and I'm aware that I'm surrounded by strangers. Uh, maybe a year or so ago, I went to a friend's a book release party over in Humboldt Park. And I thought I would know some people there because our circles would seem to overlap. I didn't know anybody. But it seemed like everybody else knew each other. You ever have one of those moments? Like, how am I the only person here? And so for like an hour, I just kind of stood off to the side, you know, like you try to make yourself look like you're doing something, look at your phone or, you know, like, you know. Not a great feeling. But those are the moments when we're aware of the strangers, right? Most of the time, we're not thinking about who the strangers in our lives are. But if we're going to think this morning about how hospitality is showing love for strangers, then let's, let's get a, a bit more precise about what we mean by, by stranger. On the one hand, strangers are simply people who are naturally strange to us. They're people who we don't know. They're, acquaint- they're, n- they're not acquaintances. They're not friends. They're people who we just we bump into on the CTA. That's, that's one kind of stranger. Now then there are, are, are strangers who maybe we could call them others. These are people who, who we've chosen to make strange to us. They're different from us in some way. And so we have somehow made them strange. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's race or, or class or politics. There's something about them that we see where we go like, no, like no, that, that's, we're probably not going to be so. These are others. Maybe we could think about the marginalized. These would be people who our society has made strange to us. Individuals who for whatever reason have been categorized in in such a way that they're mostly invisible to us or the ways that we think about them and interact with them have been shaped in profound ways by what our society has told us about them. We found in our church community in Bronzeville that often this has to do with children and youth in our neighborhood who who are described in certain sorts of ways by our, our media, that we're told certain kinds of things about young uh, black and brown, uh, women and men. And these individuals get marginalized in our city. Maybe a month ago, I was at a funeral for a young man, a 13-year-old young man who was shot and killed around the corner from where our church meets on Sundays. Surrounding his casket were many, many of his friends, young women and young men grieving over his death. On the way to the, the graveside service, two of these young men jumped in the car with me so that they could attend the service there. And, and we talked just about their lives, about what's happening. And, and I said, uh, I said, What do you want to what do you want to do when you grow up? What what career would you like to have? And do you know they could have talked for three hours about that? They had all kinds of dreams, very specific things they want to do, ways of thinking about the colleges they would like to go to. And yet, if we believed what we were told about these two young men by what we see on television, we would never see that. We would never see their individualism, their their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations. We never see any of that. We never take that seriously. Why? Because in our city, they've been marginalized. They've been made strangers to us. Are you with me? And then maybe we could kind of round out our understanding of of who strangers are by thinking about our enemies. Those who've made themselves strange to us. For whatever reason, for whatever history, for whatever legacy, for whatever misunderstanding, they've chosen to make themselves strange to us. Others, the marginalized, our enemies. We're beginning, I think, to get a little bit more specific about what it would mean to practice hospitality as the love of strangers. Paul, when Paul tells the church in Rome to practice hospitality, we can imagine him saying, Practice the love of strangers. Practice the love of others. Practice the love of the marginalized. Practice loving your enemies. Love those who you wouldn't naturally interact with. Love those who you've separated yourself from. Love those your society has made invisible. Love those who dislike you and mistreat you. New community, as you move into your new home? Will your hospitality extend to the strangers in your life? Paul says this is a practice. This is a choice. This is a decision on our part to love in a way that will not come naturally to us. Not at the beginning at least. Will you practice The love of strangers. What does that look like? What does it look like to practice loving those who we may not normally love? Well, maybe we can try to imagine what Paul is pulling from as he issues this call to the early church. Paul, a a Jewish religious scholar formed by the Hebrew scriptures? What what imagination was he pulling from as he thought about those who were other or marginalized or, or enemies? Let me suggest three places that Paul may have been thinking about. The first comes from Exodus 22 and 21. Where the people of God are commanded do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Now this seems basic. Don't Be oppressive. Are we all good with that? Oh, really? We're not. Are we all good with that? Okay, good. All right. Okay. Because if not, we're gonna have to do some extra homeworks and like some extra stuff today. So okay. Like that's basic, right? Don't oppress. Don't mistreat people. You yourselves know what it's like to have been oppressed, to have been mistreated. You were foreigners in Egypt. It seems basic, but consider. In what ways do you personally benefit from the mistreatment of strangers? What is our default posture towards strangers? We like to think it's at least neutral. We're just kind of, you know, they're just sort of there. We're not harming anybody what feels neutral to us has a shadow side that may very well be oppressive toward strangers we might never meet. Where do our clothes come from? Who made your laptop? Under what circumstances was your laptop made? Who lived in your apartment in Logan Square before you did? And why did they have to move? Did they get a, a better paying job or were they priced out of the rent? Where do they live now? What are circumstances like for them today? We begin with simply doing no harm when we think about loving strangers. Maybe Paul would think about Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18, and 19. Of God, he says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So the standard gets a little higher here. It's not simply about doing no harm, it's not simply about what we don't do, not mistreating, not oppressing, but what we do, whether we love the stranger loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. There's a posture of mercy. And then maybe Paul would have in his imaginations Leviticus 19 and 10. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Loving the stranger is active. Loving the stranger is not simply doing no harm. Loving the stranger is not simply doing acts of mercy. Loving the stranger is actively working for their good. There's an entire economic system that's being described in Leviticus that exists for the good of those on the margins. That There would always be enough work. That there would always be enough to eat. That they would never be rendered invisible. I think when we take these passages together, a vision of loving the stranger begins to emerge. And I would say it this way. We practice hospitality by actively working for the good of strangers. We practice hospitality... By actively working for the good of strangers. And remember what we mean when we use that word stranger. We practice hospitality by actively working for the good of others. Of the marginalized. Of our enemies. This, I think, is what Paul is getting at when he's writing to the church in Rome. Practice hospitality. So can you consider for a moment, who might we be mistreating? Whose lives are being exploited for our benefit? Who is pushed further to the margins because of the normal decisions that we make on a daily basis? Whose dignity is being suppressed to further our own happiness? Maybe we could ask, are we actively seeking the good of the strangers in our lives? Are we available to to help those we've never met before? Do we pursue a justice for those who seem different than ourselves? Do we have eyes to see those our world overlooks? Do we pray for the opportunity to love our enemies? Do we ask God for the opportunity to love our enemies? These Old Testament commands, this Old Testament memory that Paul is drawing from, were all given to a community. God is speaking to the people of God, to the Israelites. He's saying, "You collectively are different. You are meant to live differently." Why? Because when you love the stranger, you are pointing to the God who loves strangers. And when you love the strangers, you are demonstrating to the world that you are no longer a stranger to God. We practice stranger loving community. Excuse me, stranger-loving hospitality from the platform. Of community, The call to love strangers, others, marginalized, our enemies is impossible on our own. It is only the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to bear witness to Jesus. It is only this people, this community who are capable of showing this kind of hospitality. On your own, you'll be okay throwing a dinner party for some friends. On your own, you'll be okay even welcoming people into your new building who look like you and sound like you and were educated like you. But for this kind of hospitality, it must be the community of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to bear witness to the Son of God. I hope you're beginning to see that this kind of hospitality is actually a little bit risky. If that's not yet clear to you, let's hear from Jesus for a moment. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 30 and 35 through 36, Jesus fills in some of the background of this sort of hospitality. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Verse 35. Again, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is a kind of unlimited, unconstrained love for strangers. This is a hospitality in spite of hatred, in spite of curses, in spite of mistreatment, violence, and theft. Like the Israelites, Jesus is showing us how loving strangers in this radical way will show the world a merciful God who welcomes all strangers. Showing hospitality in this way demonstrates our identities as the recipients of God's mercy. People who were once strangers, but who are now God's friends. When we practice hospitality by loving strangers, we are bearing witness to God, but we are also leaving ourselves vulnerable here is where we need to acknowledge the risk. We live in a world of strangers. We inhabit a world where there are others, where there are individuals who have been marginalized, where there are enemies. This is the world we are called to actively love, to actively show hospitality to. This is a dangerous proposition. This is a world where gentrification displaces longtime residents. This is a world where, if we're brutally honest, guns matter more than certain individuals in our country. This is a world, at the very least, this is a city where one's zip code determines the quality of the education they'll receive. It is easier, it is safer. To limit our hospitality to people we know. To people who look like us. To people who think like us. To people who agree with us. To people who live near us. and So it's worth asking whether the vision for hospitality that Paul puts in front of the early church, whether that vision is actually possible. To the church that Paul was uh, writing in Rome. I'm sure they asked similar kinds of questions. They lived in a time um, in the Roman Empire when ep- epidemics uh, were common, where people would, would die from things like smallpox and measles. Historians think that a smallpox uh, plague went through Rome in 165 and killed between a third and a quarter of the entire population, including the current emperor. A few years later, a a measles epidemic went through the same area, killing 5,000 people a day. Sociologist Rodney Stark, he, he tries to describe what this would have felt like. He says, here we are in a city stinking of death. All around us, our family and friends are dropping. We can never be sure if or when we will fall sick too. In the midst of such appalling circumstances, humans are driven to ask why. If we are pagans, we probably already know that our priests profess ignorance. Worse yet, many of our priests have fled the city, as have the highest civil authorities and the wealthiest families, which adds to the disorder and suffering. How would you respond in those situations? This was a situation that was not theoretical for the church that Paul was writing to. A Bishop Dionysius, one of the early church bishops, looking back on these times, he writes, At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated the unbur- unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. It's a horrific scene. And the common response that Bishop Dionysius is describing makes sense to us, I think. We can imagine what it must have felt like for there to have been no known cures, diseases of unknown origins, political and social and religious leaders who had all fled, leaving the the city unstable. But what about the Christians? After all, they had already experienced some level of persecution and marginalization by their neighbors in the Roman Empire. What did they do? Dionysus goes on to describe their posture. He says, heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, nursing and caring others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. It could almost sound like hagiography, except that there are Non-Christian historians who corroborate that this was indeed how the Christians responded in these circumstances. Now the non-Christian historians, they kind of look down their noses at the Christians for giving their lives away. They didn't see this as, as a positive, as a, as, a, as a good thing, but they corroborate what Dionysius is saying here. He's saying they stayed. When everybody else was fleeing, they stayed, and because they stayed, because they cared for their neighbors, regardless of whether they were Christian or not, many in the early church died by these epidemics. They demonstrated a hospitality by actively working for the good of their neighbors, of those who were strange to them in their city. They literally gave away their lives for their enemies, for the marginalized, for others. Church, this kind of fearless hospitality is what is required of us. Whether or not we have any particularly great uh, uh, ideas of what this is supposed to look like, whether or not we see Around us, Christians living this way, is beside the point. This kind of hospitality is what is required of us. And we need to be clear, it is costly. Hospitable people, people who actively love strangers, will not escape this life unscathed. You will get hurt. You will be let down. You will suffer. There's nothing glamorous about turning the other cheek. Where is the hope that we can actually live this way? What truth did those early Christians know that motivated to live their lives so that their neighbors, their enemies, could survive the plague? comes, I think, from knowing that God welcomes strangers. And that that includes you. When we grasp, when we begin to grasp God's hospitality toward us, we begin to more naturally love and welcome the strangers in our lives. In another place, Paul writes to the church in the book of Colossians, and he says about us, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We come to God as strangers. We come to God as women and men who've been marginalized by the oppressive powers and authorities of this universe. We come to God even as enemies who have mistreated His creation and His creatures. You were alienated. You were a stranger to God. And God welcomed you. is where people should say amen, Pastor Michael. You came to God as a stranger, and God welcomed you. And He did not welcome you passively. He did not, let me say this carefully, He did not buy a beautiful new church building and get it all set up just right, and then wait for you to come. He went looking for you, the other, the marginalized, the stranger, the enemy. He didn't, he didn't sit back in his nice, beautiful sanctuary, which, by the way, I am a little bit jealous of, okay? So, like, if there's a little thing coming out right now, that's probably—we just be clear— I love our gym that we meet in, but okay, that's a thing in me right now. But he didn't get his nice, beautiful, perfect sanctuary. Okay, I've got it all set up. I've got the the pews ready. I've got the welcome team ready. They just got to come to me. He did not passively welcome you. He actively searched for you, looking for you, calling to you. This is the radical, stranger-loving hospitality that made relationship and friendship with God possible for every one of us. God welcomes strangers. God welcomes you. The early church knew this. They understood this. They cared for their sick neighbors despite the cost to their own lives. Why? Because they knew what it had cost God to welcome them. There was no greater cost. The greatest cost had already been paid so they could give their own lives to love the strangers in their lives. They demonstrated fearless hospitality to those who had persecuted them. To those who had marginalized them. Because they knew that God had rescued them even while they lived as God's enemies. Hospitality was a radical and a risky act. Hospitality of this kind Subverted an empire that sliced and diced by gender and class and ethnicity. This kind of hospitality was a pronounced no to the accepted wisdom that some people vow- were more valuable than others. As strangers, God welcomes us through his utter and complete vulnerability. His birth into poverty. His temptation in the wilderness. The rejection he faced by his own family and the opposition he knew from the religious authorities. His patience with the agenda-driven crowds and his humiliating service to his own disciples. All of this leads to God's Definitive moment of hospitality, of practicing the love of strangers. And Jesus said in John 12, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Do you see? The moment of God's most profound hospitality to us, to the strangers, to his enemies, is on the cross when God becomes vulnerable, when God empties himself of his power, when God gives himself over to death. This is what allows us to draw near. This is what allows the strangers to be reconciled to their Creator. If this is how God's hospitality works, then can we expect it to be any different for us? What can replace this? More people on the hospitality team? A a nicer bulletin? A more beautiful sanctuary? If we just get the diversity mix just right, if we just have the right people on, what can replace the cross where God emptied himself for you and for your salvation? That you who were alienated, that you who were a stranger, that you were who, God's, who were God's enemy could draw near and be his friend. What can replace the cross? Nothing. Nothing. And so this becomes our posture of hospitality to our world. Our hospitality to our world is a cruciform hospitality. To love the strangers in our city will require that we follow the way of Jesus. That we become vulnerable That we give up our privilege and our power, those of us who have it. That we empty ourselves of our agenda and our will and our priorities. We demonstrate in our flesh the cross of Jesus Christ that let you and I become friends of God. Can somebody say amen if we're like on the same page here? you better come up. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is many, many things. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is everything. But it is not less than this. On the cross, God chose vulnerability unto death so that we who were strangers to God could be welcomed by Him. The cross is our example of hospitality in a world of strangers. If our hospitality does not look like the cross, then we're missing it. The the, the cross is our example, but even more, the cross is more than our example the welcome that you and I receive at the cross through the forgiveness of our sins, through Christ's victorious and atoning resurrection. The cross becomes the source of power that lets us love strangers in the pattern of our Savior. I promise I'm really happy about your new building. Dan, I promise I'm really happy about your new building. I can't wait to see it. But our hope is not in buildings. Our faith is not in bank accounts. New Community Covenant Church. May your new home be a place where your community can love strangers. May it be a place not of protection, but a place of vulnerability. Vulnerability. May the cross of Jesus Christ be your standard. That women and men, strangers, the marginalized, enemies, you and me, that all would be drawn in love to our savior. Amen. Amen. So God, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through your son's life and death and resurrection, that we have an eternal hope. This morning, Lord God, I pray that, that any among us who could not claim that hope would place themselves in your arms today would give over their will and their desires to you and to you alone, trusting that you will be in charge of their lives, that you will secure their hope and their future uh, for them, that you will forgive them, that you will place in front of them a trajectory toward you that can never be stolen. We thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for throwing us a, a, great, a great banquet, for setting the table for us and then hitting the highways and the byways saying, everybody come. You don't have to be dressed right. You don't have to know the right things. Come, the banquet is set for you. Every barrier has been removed. We thank you, God, for this kind of hospitality. Thank you for loving us when we were strangers to you. So our, 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 our ask, our request this morning, God, is that you would, uh, through the power of your uh, spirit with us, make the cross of our Lord Jesus so central to our identity that we cannot help but love the strangers around us, that we will begin to see the strangers around us, that we will begin to orient our lives in such a way that your gospel would be interesting and appealing uh, to them. This church would see the gift of this building as an opportunity to be more vulnerable, to be more cruciform, to make the mystery of the gospel where the all powerful God becomes weak for us and for our salvation, to make this gospel more visible in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think at this time I'm supposed to ask the ushers to come forward. Does that sound correct? And so as they're getting um, the offering baskets to pass, I want to thank you again for having me this morning. Uh, You are... uh, You're always welcome to visit us down on the south side. We'd love to have you. It's good to know that we're a mission together. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed clearly, boldly, in so many different ways uh, through your ministry here. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Don't stop. Don't stop. So, God, now we ask that you would receive these tithes and these offerings. We've seen very specific, um, tangible ways that you're putting to work the faithful uh, generosity of this church, and we thank you for it, God. Pray that it would simply increase. I pray for hearts this morning that would be generous, whether or not we have anything to give. You'd be shaping us and forming us to be a, a people of generosity in the ways in which we care for one another, in the ways in which we think about our finances, but also in the ways in which we give ourselves away for the good of strangers in our life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.